watch and discuss the horrific, the obscure, and the flat-out strange from the other side of cinema. I'm Mark Dickerson. And I'm Jeremy Fink. And this is the second episode in our series, X-Rated and Animated, The World of Ralph Bakshi, where we'll be digging into the work of a true and controversial auteur of animated cinema. Today, we'll be discussing Bakshi's sophomore effort and his most autobiographical work, 1973's Heavy Traffic. Ready or not, here it comes. The makers of Fritz the Cat now bring you Heavy Traffic. You'll meet hoods, hustlers, freaks, creeps, cops, crazies, weirdos, winos, hard hats, lowlifes, and God. Hey, this is the voice of God. What's up? It's animated, but it's not a cartoon. It's funny, but it's not a comedy. It's real. It's unreal. It's heavy. Heavy traffic. Heavy Traffic, written and directed by Ralph Bakshi, follows the life of a young man living in New York City named, not to be confused with the godfather, Michael Corleone, who wanders around playing pinball and exploring the inner city, dark, grimy, grimy underside of the city. Um, it's a really interesting film because it's kind of, A, as we mentioned before, Ralph Bakshi's most autobiographical work, but it also does a really interesting thing in that it combines some live-action footage with an animated story and kind of bounce back and forth as they play off of each other as we see the real life in the live action and kind of this this fantasy world that this young cartoonist creates in the in the animated world. Yeah, some interesting techniques uh, in this film. And as you said, this one is much more overtly personal than Fritz the Cat was. Um, and he this is a film that he originally wanted to make as his first feature. But of course, he was not able to do that because who is this guy trying to make a personal animated feature? Uh, but once Fritz the Cat came out and was hugely successful and gained a lot of notoriety, he was able to make this film apparently very quickly after Fritz the Cat came out. Because this is the very next year, 1973. Fritz the Cat came out in 72. And in this film, there's no more anthropomorphized uh, animals. It was, And this is actually Bakshi's personal favorite of the films that he made. And it's also one of his better-reviewed movies, I would say. Um, and what were your first impressions of it, though, Jeremy? Um, yeah, I mean, definitely, I think that getting rid of... Coming from Fritz the Cat, and uh, to our listeners out there, for me, this is probably... I may have seen Fritz the Cat before, but for the rest of these Ralph Bakshi films, with the exception of maybe the Lord of the Rings film... Uh, this is probably my first time seeing all of them, so this was my first time watching this movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, so coming from Fritz the Cat, like the, the anthropomorphized animals for me kind of put this little barrier up where maybe you could it could hit on some heavier, more risque topics and not quite feel as dangerous and brutal. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas this movie, I really felt that when things got dark in this movie, when things got intense, it was really really intense yeah um i think that i think that the fact that even though they're cartoon characters the fact that we're watching human beings going through some of this stuff you know the the extreme violence Mm -hmm. the racism you know the the domestic abuse it, it really kind of for me was a lot more brutal to watch um but because of that i think also a more um emotional experience I found myself kind of really intensely invested in these characters mm-hmm. and their struggles as we move through this movie. For sure. Uh, there is some disturbing and violent imagery in this film. 
and Bakshi appears to be wrestling with some inner demons and trying to expunge himself or expel these images from his head uh, with a lot of these animations, which I think is pretty different than Fritz the Cat. Uh, Fritz the Cat was more of a, I mean, it had a message and he definitely was very, uh, you know, there's moments in there which are very uh, out there and crazy <laughs> and yeah. shocking and all of that. But like you said, Jeremy, because it is uh, more real in a lot of ways and deals with real people, uh, even though it's animated, it's, it has a certain um, edge to it that Fritz doesn't really have. And it does give it that a little bit more emotion, as you said, as, as well. I definitely felt that from this movie, which mm-hmm. is why I think I do like it more than Fritz the Cat. But um, I mean, just to compare, I mean, it's apples and oranges kind of because Fritz the Cat is is completely different animal than this movie. Literally. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that, I swear. Uh, <laughs> so this one, you know, it's a lot more about uh, inner city life and I guess uh, Bakshi's own background uh, mm-hmm. growing up in New York. Uh, and as I said, it's much more personal. It goes into um, his parents, his family life, his career aspirations. Um, a lot of the scenes in his, in his the apartment that he grew up in is how he saw his parents. Yeah. And <laughs> as you can see, maybe not the best view or maybe just looking back, he was able to, uh, like I said, I think he was working through some some things with this movie, um, because to drive that point home, I mean, he's they're very cartoonishly arguing and fighting in every scene. His parents are, and uh, they're clearly drawn from his views on how he saw his parents' relationship, I guess, um, and, and whether or not things like that happened in his, in his home or not, I can't confirm. But uh, they, I'm sure, I'm sure there's something that inspired him to uh, look at it in that in that light. Um, yeah. And I think I think the fact that it got so personal uh, makes this film pretty relatable. Mm-hmm. You know, despite the fact that you know, there's this, this thing you hear people talk a lot. Uh, there is this thing you hear people talk about a lot, um, where they say that the more specific you make something as a creative person, kind of weirdly, the more it seems to resonate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that holds true here because, uh, particularly for me, for the scenes with his parents and him trying to escape in his art, I think that's something that kind of anyone who is a creative person can relate to not necessarily your parents being the source of stress, but kind of this idea of the art as escape, the Mm -hmm. art as refuge. Um, Yeah. And and I think that's the thing that makes the Michael character likable in this because he does, Mm. he does some pretty twisted things in this movie. He does. Uh, Just to get into the plot a little bit. um, He, to, to quickly sum things up, he comes from this home where his parents are arguing and he meets this local bartender who works at this very skeevy kind of bar. The two of them end up developing this relationship and then turning to crime uh, Mm. to make some money. So, Mm. so Michael does some things in this movie that are kind of unsavory. Um, It's almost as if Bakshi was, imagining a path that he could have gone on you know what i mean yeah uh it's almost like he was like well you know things could have gone this way if i didn't find success in animation that's the way i kind of saw it uh Mm -hmm. but you you as you mentioned uh he's as a character he is like you look at him as like a sort of uh a very sympathetic character there's even a scene one of the scenes where his uh parents are arguing and and he's actually at a drawing board and animating a scene of his parents arguing <laughs> and violent, you know, as they violently come to blows in the background, he's, he's actually animating the scene at the same time, which I thought was kind of interesting. And, you know, a lot of this movie can be seen as like a little on the nose, I guess, or like, Oh, of course he made a movie about a young starving artist and blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. But to me, you know, that's where he was at, his, at this point in his life. And this is the movie that he first wanted to make. Like I said, 
And it's something that he needs to get out of himself. And I think in the end, it is an entertaining movie. And I mean, there's different views you can have of it for sure, but you can't deny that there's a certain raw uh, emotion to this film that is just, just really comes through. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. And, and I think that, um, yeah. And, and I think that like, like we, we, we got into this idea of the, like this violence kind of coming across and it maybe being a little bit on the nose with him being an animator. I, I personally don't have a problem with that being on the nose. Um, a, because I think that the story of an animator isn't something that gets told a lot. Exactly. Yeah. You know, like even if it is on the nose, that feels kind of specific enough. Like obviously we've seen a lot of films about young filmmakers yeah. and a lot of films about right. young actors and not to knock those, there's nothing mm -hmm. wrong with those if they're done well, but that that's where when we start talking about things being a little on the nose, mm -hmm. you know, like we have to present something new. And I think that this this idea of the young animator is particularly interesting, especially in an animated film. It creates this kind of strange meta uh, situation where you start watching it, and, and especially in this, because we have that layer where there's also the live action stuff, yeah. where you start really we'll having to question... Yeah, which you have to start really questioning how much of this is fantasy mm -hmm. and how much of it is real and what the purpose of that fantasy is serving. Because, like, you know, generally a fantasy you know, is when we, we put the things we want together. You know, it's it's like like you could see a fantasy being, oh, you know, you become rich and you become famous and or you become really rich, but or I already said rich, or you know, but <laughs> yeah. Um but but I think what's interesting in this situation is that his fantasy is so dark. Yeah. You know, his his fantasy is not the kind of thing that most people would fantasize about. It's kind of it's the like ground the, level fantasy yeah. yeah it's kind of like like a mahalan drive you know and mm. i don't think saying that spoils mahalan drive at all because you can't really spoil mahalan drive well we spoil um, everything on this show so I mean. we spoil everything <laughs> but once again like you know that's just a also when it comes to mahalan drive it's just an interpretation um sure. but it's it's kind of it, it revolves around this this fear of failure this fear of the underbelly of what it means to chase after the american dream mm -hmm. um and I think to me that, like, even though it might be a little bit on the nose in terms of how it dives into his personal life, it's so personal, it's so unfiltered mm -hmm. that it avoids a lot of cliches, it avoids a lot of kind of getting lost in its own, mm -hmm. its own, uh, its own on the nose-ness, for lack of a better term. Well, like you said, it's, it's, it may be a little bit, um, on the nose, I keep saying that because I can't think of any other way to say yeah. it, uh, mm -hmm. it may be like that a little bit, but because the film is so grounded and down to earth in a lot of ways, even though it has these over exaggerations and over the top characterizations of different characters, uh, it still has that gritty down to earth feel. And I think that's kind of what makes it work. And um, I want to ask Jeremy, do you see this film? Uh, we discussed Fritz the cat previously and how that was a commentary on sixties culture. Um, do you see this film as being somewhat critical or, or reflective on what was then the current, 70s new york like the, the age they were living in do you think he was making a comment on the times they were in or do you think it's more just more personal and that's and that's about it do you think there was a little bit of both um, i i think my feeling here um is that just by setting it there and making something that's so personal it inevitably becomes a comment on the time um and i think that that's something it's kind of no matter what time a creator is creating in, their work inevitably is a reflection of that time. Mm -hmm. You know, there are certain ideas, because there are certain things that 
if you were to put in a work of art now, they might be seen as regressive, where 30 years ago it would be daring and groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, if you're making a decision as a creative person, or Ralph Bakshi making these decisions as a creative person, to include, you know, the the gritty gang violence, the, the domestic violence, the hypersexuality, all of that kind of stuff yeah. in this film and set it in New York City, I think inevitably, even if that might have just been his reality there is an innate commentary on that place and that time. Right. Uh, I think, but first and foremost, so it was portraying the world as Bakshi saw it, or as it appeared to him as a young man uh, coming up in the streets, sort of, and, um, you know, trying to be an animator. And it may not be everyone's view, but then Bakshi is a very personal filmmaker, not someone who's really interested in mainstream opinions, I would say. Yeah. Uh, so I think his goal was always just to show his view of things and how he saw it. Um, and the way he does that is uh, he's he's never afraid to be crude or crass, I guess you could say, to, yeah. to prove a point. Uh, and I've prob- probably a lot of that is what may turn certain people off uh, from him and his work as they may only see the surface level of what's going on. Um, He's not an easily accessible filmmaker. He's not. And and even though it's animation and oh, everyone says animations for kids, whatever uh, he's dealing with some really deep seated issues and some complicated themes. Mm -hmm. And some people will just see, uh, Oh, it's a cartoon and they don't really pay attention or they just think it's stupid and whatever. But um, I do believe that there are deeper currents at play here and more complex themes uh, at work if, if one is open-minded enough to to look for them. And also along with that, Bakshi does not shy away from racial and ethnic stereotypes, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times using them to explore racism or certain attitudes of the time. As you said, mm-hmm. you know, when you make a film, it's of its time, no matter what you do, really. Um, and there's certainly a lot of that here. Um, and seen through a modern lens, it can be seen as maybe problematic or unwarranted. Mm-hmm seems like Bakshi uh, allows his mind to freely explore these types of themes in his animation. Um, But how do you feel about how those types of things were represented here? Um, Do you think because Bakshi lived in that world, do you think it's maybe more acceptable or you can see where he's coming from? Or how do you feel about the the stereotypes and the the racial, um, I guess, themes of this film? I personally feel that with Bakshi, once again, as we discussed in our Fritz the Cat episode, there's a certain thing where because he's kind of from these actual situations and environments, you know, he's not guessing mm-hmm. at what these people's lives are like. He's he's kind of really experienced it. I think that the those decisions are done in kind of a place where he's trying to make a statement about it, um, particularly when it comes to race, because that seems to be the thing in his films that often gets talked about as mm-hmm. the most controversial thing. Um, I think, in my opinion, and, you know, I could be wrong, this is just an opinion, right. but I think he's using um, kind of stereotypical drawings and, and imagery to as, as satire almost. Mm-hmm. He's trying to make a point that this is the worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, and and by, by accentuating, and, and not just, you know, like, like every race and type of people are kind of the the thing about them that is considered the most uh stereotyped is is always um brought to the forefront Mm -hmm. you know it's accentuated so so to me i think he's kind of he's kind of using that as a tool and as you said in our previous episode he is an equal Mm -hmm. opportunity offender 
I think it's yeah. your exact words because I was just destroyer. editing it. Oh, Destroyer, sorry. Yeah. Equal Opportunity Destroyer, I got it wrong. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, you had mentioned that, and I think that's very true because mm-hmm. ev- I think everyone gets it in certain ways. And a lot mm-hmm. of these people, he did, you know, these types of people he did know and uh, grew up amongst them. And as we also discussed in the previous episode, he would he's very ground level guy. He's, he uh, would take a tape recorder and go to a bar and talk to people and get their actual conversations and record those and put them into his movies. So he, you know, I think he comes from it from a different place than a lot of other people would, um, which maybe gives him certain leverage. And, and, you know, I think he's dealing with things that he's seen and and conversations that he's heard and things like that. So, um, but there, you know, sorry, what was that? So I think I think he tends to give even if he draws someone a particular character in a really stereotypical way, he tends to humanize those characters too. Yeah, you, you know, feel, you tend to feel sorry for them, or yeah, yeah or or you know, like they're not one dimensional stereotypes. No, um, even if even if they're drawn, um, even if they're drawn in a way where, he, and and I think that that's kind of what's interesting too is why I would personally lean towards saying that he's doing this in the spirit of satire is that if someone is drawn in a way where you have a preconceived notion about them, mm-hmm. he will kind of immediately break the preconceived notion. Mm-hmm. Um, which is interesting because historically, you know, animation has a huge history of racism. Mm-hmm. You know, they, like, oh, yeah. like hi- yeah. historically, like if you look back at early animation, like it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's rampant with really, really racist, troubling imagery. Yeah. And those characters were never portrayed as you know, three-dimensional human mm-hmm. beings. They were just the, the you know, they were yeah. the stereotype. So I think by drawing these characters as a stereotype and leading you to believe that, oh, it's going to be a certain way, um, yeah. and then all of a sudden flipping that mm-hmm. and portraying this very real human being, it kind of makes us as the audience really think about and consider why that decision might be made and mm-hmm. what's being accomplished. For sure. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's not surface level, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, and And... In addition to him exploring those types of themes, he also, you know, this film, uh, Fritz the Cat was, I, I would say, a complete satire. Uh, this film has elements of satire in it, and he does ex- explore the animation world a little bit, not too much, but there is a scene in particular I wanted to talk about because I think it's uh, kind of sums up his feelings maybe about the animation industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but so Michael, the main character, gets a chance to pitch a comic strip idea uh, to an old executive, and this guy is laying literally, literally lying on his deathbed in the <laughs> hospital. Uh, but he seems enthusiastic enough to listen to him explain the idea. And once Michael has gone on this little tangent and explained what he wants to portray, um, the tone of it is, I guess, so dark uh, that the mogul actually ends up dying during the pitch. So it's like, it's. Um, I feel like that says a lot about how Bakshi felt at this time you know when he was probably pitching this idea honestly to yeah. to uh, some old executive who had no idea like what is this like you're gonna make an animated film for adults and he had proven that he could do it with fritz the cat but before that i'm sure it was and even after yeah. fritz the cat i'm sure it was uh difficult for him to get anything made which is why i was so surprised that this was made so quickly, I guess because that movie was so successful, but yeah. anyway, and well, this sure, movie too yeah. was made, this wasn't an expensive movie to make. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, like I can't verify these numbers, but the numbers I'm seeing in terms of budget are $950,000. Okay. Um, which, you know, granted this is early seventies, so that wasn't like nothing, 
yeah. back then, but it wasn't it wasn't a big budget movie, if, especially uh, for a director and writer coming off a movie that mm-hmm. just made ninety million dollars. Yeah, you know, and saying he's going to do something in a similar style with similar themes, like no one, no one wrote him just a massive. You know, he he didn't have a blank check to make this movie. Um, yeah, and he did run into a lot of problems during the production of this film. I was reading mm-hmm. about that a little bit as well. I don't know if you saw that, Jeremy, but um, halfway into production, Bakshi was actually fired. Right. Uh, he was eventually rehired, obviously, but they were trying to get a different animator to actually finish the film, which I can't even imagine, because yeah. he is such an auteur. And he he oversees every cell of a film. So um, they <laughs> I don't know if this is just a rumor. I saw it listed a couple places, but it's unbelievable to me that they would do this. But apparently they tried to hire Chuck Jones to finish directing this film. You know, like the guy who you know worked on a lot of Looney Tunes and things like that, which mm-hmm. I mean, very talented man, obviously. But it's just such a different been, thing. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, he declined it. And I Again, Bakshi ended up coming back and everything ended up, ended up working out. But yeah. that is just very interesting to me if that's actually true. Uh, because, yeah, Bakshi's just his own style. You know, he's 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 an auteur uh, for sure. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, to see anyone else try to take on his work would have, would have been interesting. But not, yeah. the, not the same movie. So speaking of style, as you just mentioned, he is his own style. One stylistic note that is significant about this particular film is Bakshi's use of rotoscoping. Um, where he, he kind of not as much as in his later work, um, but here he really started to introduce some of the rotoscoping, um, which I don't totally understand the technology of rotoscoping. Mm-hmm. Mark, you might be able to speak to it better. Uh, well, I don't understand the ins and outs really, but I, I yeah. know that it basically involves uh, uh, you know, drawing over a real, real footage, real mm-hmm. person, and using that as your as your guide for the animation pretty much. Instead of either going off the top of your head or looking at a reference, mm-hmm. they would actually trace over uh, real footage, which would yeah. give, it, give it a much more realistic motion. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that as the director and writer who working in the animation field kind of seem most concerned with realism, that this is the technique that he would end up embracing. Yeah, um, you see a lot of it know, in the, uh, his Lord of the Rings that he eventually In his Lord makes. of the Rings, yeah. yeah. I think, I might be wrong, but wasn't it like most of that movie, I think, was yeah. rotoscope? Most, if um, not all, yeah. Which is crazy. I would love to see the original footage, but um, I think it does exist somewhere. It, it has to exist yeah. somewhere, but we'll, we'll get to that when we get to that movie. Um, but but I do think it's interesting because you, you you kind of wonder maybe why if 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 he's already taking the step to rotoscope. One thing I was thinking about is like there was more money not to be made, but bigger budgets in making live action films, and at this time, a film like Heavy Traffic probably could have gotten made as a live action film. Yeah. You know, th- th- this was, this low is budget. within, yeah. yeah, low budget kind of uh, similar. I- I'd have to check the dates, but similar time period to like, well, actually yeah, same year as mean streets came out. Yeah. yeah. Um, so like, th- like, like I almost wonder, you know, like I wonder if there was ever, ever for Bakshi a temptation to just say, all right, screw it. I'm going to go do this live action thing. Well, uh, yeah. Th- or I if mean, it was always about the animation. Yeah. It's a good question. He's such an animator at heart that I, couldn't imagine it any other way, but I guess he was uh, trying to expand his horizons a little bit and maybe just yeah. experimenting because there's lots of experimentation, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a very uh, experimental nature with this film, so they combine live action with animation, sometimes even in the same exact frame, which is really cool and yeah. something you didn't see much uh, at that time, you know, until uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Aha. Mm-hmm. 
the music video <laughs> for Take On Me, you know, until those <laughs> things started coming out um, and blowing people's minds. Uh, no. So this was before all of that. And he was just kind of uh, trying it out, I guess, and trying different things. And sometimes it comes uh, comes off really neat. And there's some cool effects with that. Um, he also incorporates scenes from old movies and war footage. Uh, he also incorporates what looks like B-roll footage or images uh, for the backgrounds. Uh, as we discussed with Fritz the Cat, they used actual photographs of backgrounds, uh, and they traced over that for the backgrounds in that film. And in this film, they kind of took it a step further where they would actually use the actual footage or the photographs as the background, and they did some tracing in this film as well. So he kind of combines a lot of different elements, and it's a natural uh, progression, I would Mm -hmm. say, from Fritz the Cat. And you see him trying out a lot of different things in this movie, and that's part of why I like this movie so much, because it's so much, Mm -hmm. you kind of, you just feel his energy, you feel his headspace uh, so much when you're watching this, you just see him trying out these different things, and yeah. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I did want to ask because there are some actual live action scenes in the movie, uh, mm-hmm. mostly the ending. Uh, yeah. how, how did you beginning feel about the, it, yeah. the beginning and the end? How, what did you think of the live action segments? Do you think they worked? Do you think they fit well or mixed well with what we saw in the rest of the film? Um, think I think they worked. It, it kind of yeah. took me by surprise a little bit. Um, I think by the end of the film, when we see some more of this live action footage, I had kind of forgotten the beginning a little bit. Yeah. I had kind of forgotten that we had already seen the live action stuff. Yeah. So to me, it kind of felt like it came out of nowhere a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, once again, spoilers abound. Um, I, like, I love that we have our main character getting killed. Yeah. And then we go to our live action thing. Yeah. And we're like, wow, you know, like they're killing the main character. Where does it go from here? <laughs> so like, I thought, I thought that it, it was a natural conclusion. Yeah. I think it was kind of uh, jarring for me personally mm-hmm. for the first like minute of that live action footage. Right. Like, like it took me a little while. It, did, it didn't seem like necessarily like a smooth. It almost felt transition. like they're, yeah. they're going to go right back in animation. They didn't at all. Yeah. Um, which I have, yeah, because I had seen this years ago and I had forgotten that they there was so much live action in it. To be honest, I yeah. didn't really remember that, so it took me by surprise as well, even uh, rewatching it. And uh, but I think it works. I think because the movie is so uh, ground level and and real in certain ways, uh, I think mm-hmm. it makes sense to end on an actual live action scene. Um, yeah. Whether or not it works as well as everything else in the movie, I mean, that's up for debate. But I think it's the fact that he ended it that way is is interesting. And yeah. you, you see where, again, you see where his headspace was at. And mm-hmm. um, another thing I want to discuss, uh, besides the live action footage, there's a reoccurring motif of pinball in the movie. Yeah. I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Um, I guess I saw it as actually seeing inner city life as some sort of win or lose game. Interesting. Yeah. I, I see. I kind of, yeah. yeah. No, go on, go on. I'm curious to hear this. Well, that, that was my main thought about it. Just how people like win or lose. Yeah. yeah and people ping-ponging back and forth and never yeah. really you know and then yeah i don't know just like seeing it as a game was an interesting uh motif that went yeah. throughout but what yeah because I, I i had an interpretation of that too and for me it was kind of because the main character was the one who we we saw playing the ping ball the, the pinball not ping ball that combined mm. ping pong and pinball <laughs> um because the main character was the one we saw playing pinball um i kind of thought of it in relation to him and i uh, the thing about pinball is that it's all about this ball getting knocked around kind of recklessly you know it's all about it's all about this thing where it gets hit and it's going in a direction but it hits something and then it's thrown in another direction it's just kind of getting pushed around uh with no real will of its own and i thought that that was kind of a 
the perfect metaphor for the Michael character because he basically would just kind of roll with the punches throughout this film. Yeah. You know, he did, it didn't really seem like he had a lot of agency. Like he's just thrown into an environment Mm-hmm. and then shot out and then just yeah. kind of getting pushed around by these people and circumstances, even from the beginning, you know, like you look at his family life, like he kind of had no chance based on mm-hmm. the situation he was coming from. His parents yeah. couldn't really nurture him or give him any guidance because they didn't really seem to have their own. Yeah. It's like he's banging around inside that apartment and then he ends up yeah. out in the streets and he's banging he around outside he's there. Banging and, out the, yeah, yeah, so. and eventually it ends up with him, you know, going, I don't know the terms for, pinball but going down the gutter is that what you would say the Til- or the yeah, whatever, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> whatever I, I, I it is when you lose tilt, pinball yeah yeah, yeah exactly. whatever, whatever it is when you lose um but, but yeah, eventually he loses you know he gets knocked around until there's nowhere else for him to go yeah. and he can't get knocked around anymore and then it's game over right game um, over. exactly so and, and the metaphor comes through in really interesting ways like mm-hmm. there's one scene where um and this may even just be me putting my own thoughts into it but at one point mm-hmm. a gun is fired and as a bullet comes toward us or towards where the "Quote unquote camera would be it resembles mm-hmm. a big silver pinball. Interesting, but, but yeah. It kind of it kind of morphs that's a good catch. In, from that into a bullet, and mm-hmm. so that's one way that that he uh, explores that theme. And obviously, the live action segments in the beginning and the end show the main character playing pinball. And I did look up because uh, I was interested, in, you know, why he chose that theme, and I I saw some information about it. Apparently, the inspiration for the film actually came from penny arcades where Bakshi would often spend his time playing pinball and sometimes bringing his 12-year-old son, Mark, with him. Um, So he wanted to use it as a metaphor to examine the ways of the world. So that makes sense uh, in that regard. What's interesting is this is actually, now that I'm thinking of it, this is the second pinball movie we have talked about. Oh, it is. On this podcast. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So if you get the chance, go back. If you've not listened already, go back and check out our episode on Tommy in our Mm -hmm. Rock and Reel series. Yes. Um, But it's kind of a similar thing, actually, where they they use the metaphor in a similar way. What year was Tommy? Was Tommy 1970? It was 75. 75. So this actually actually predated Tommy. I, I don't know. If you well, the know, the album came out, I think earlier. Yeah, it is. so so which, and I think it's also just one of those zeitgeist things. I think where pinball it's a game. was really very much in the yeah. It was very popular, but it's interesting, kind of seeing this pinball metaphor mm-hmm. being used twice in in a kind of similar way, actually. Yeah. You know this this young person who's thrown into a really crazy, mm-hmm. violent, scary world, um, and forced to navigate it with no real guidance, just one kind of, of being who, bounced around. One of them who achieves fame, and this one who. Who doesn't? Mm-hmm. So it's interesting who doesn't, that yeah. way, yeah. Who who kind of goes in the exact? And what's interesting too is to go back and once again, sort of briefly, to because we already did a whole episode on it. So please go back and listen. Um, but Tommy follows the story of a deaf, dumb, blind kid who plays a mean pinball. And um, basically, in that story, he has no real agency. He kind of just because he's so good at pinball, but he can't see, he can't hear, or anything like that. He becomes very famous for it. Um, but it's kind of almost like the Forrest Gump thing where it's this guy who's not really trying yeah. to achieve great success or fame, just kind of does. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this story, it's this guy who really desperately wants something yeah. else and is struggling, mm-hmm. but despite his best efforts, isn't able to, um, which is really a pretty interesting and grim worldview. Yeah. Um, but also, obviously, a realistic worldview. You know, there are plenty yeah. of stories in real life and in fiction that we hear of people who, despite their best efforts, just don't get where they want and then they either spend their lives miserable or they have to reckon with it and try to pick themselves up and do something else or just kind of keep trying i mean you hear stories about people like uh like i'm I'm a big rock and roll fan and there's this documentary about a band called anvil have you seen that mark 
or heard of this? Um, I have heard of it. Basically, they were a band that started out, I want to say, I, it's been a really long time since I've seen it, but they started out back in the 70s or 80s yeah. and kind of just kept playing music and have been playing like small clubs to nobody for years, like 30, 40 years. And eventually this documentary filmmaker uh, found them and made this film about them. And now in their probably 60s mm-hmm. are for, for the first time really having some success. Oh, wow. Um, so, it's you know, it's one of those things where, you, never you know. know, you never know, but but the these the stories about people who are really driven are kind of yeah. interesting to dive into because you see the different ways For that sure. luck plays into it yeah. you see how the the one opinion of the guy laying on his deathbed who's the executive can totally change mm-hmm. someone's view of themselves or make it and, break you uh, as a make or break you, yeah as a career yeah um, um what what do you think about the uh, soundtrack for this movie being a, a rock fan there's a lot of like rock, i think rock music that he used uh from yeah. the time maybe not rock and like well, I guess there was some like traditional uh, rock songs actually that he used in there. Um, yeah, Maybelline, Scarborough Fair, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Twist and Shout. Yeah. Um, no, I, I really enjoyed the soundtrack for this. Mm. Um, weirdly, the song that kind of stuck with me from this movie was "Take Five by the okay. Dave Brubeck yeah. Quartet, mm-hmm. and that is for a personal reason because I used to work in an office building where someone would stand outside and play that song over and <laughs> over again for money. So every time I hear oh, wow. that song. I am immediately enraged. Um, but, but no, I thought I thought the soundtrack was great. I think it's kind of of the time, you know, like yeah. perfect. A few years after uh, the graduate, mm-hmm. you know, you're you're like like you have this idea of the graduate, Easy Rider. You know, that was very yeah. timely to be using contemporary music then. Right. Um, but it still has which, that kind of like funky score that Fritz the Cat had, where it's like kind of like this background music to a lot of the scenes as well, like a yeah. funk, like a more funk uh, oriented uh, music, I guess. Um, which but, I think relates to that idea of like the penny arcades, because I feel like mm-hmm. that's kind of maybe the music that you would hear people like you're standing around in the arcade. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, I wasn't around <laughs> the late 1960s playing pinball, but at least in my mind, that kind of. Yeah. instrumental funky stuff is what would accompany a day right. of pinball and yeah. smoking cigarettes outside with your friends yeah and it gives the whole movie a, a certain kind of feel i think when it, you put that kind of music in the background um mm-hmm. and so i guess to kind of close our conversation on the movie i do want to i wanted to bring up uh that you know we talked about how fritz the fritz the cat was a x-rated film and how that was such a big big deal at the time this one um was also rated x because they as much as the producer uh Krantz and and Bakshi wanted to go for an r-rated film because more people could see it uh they still were given an x-rated although eventually an r-rated version was released in the late 1990s okay which it, i'm not sure why but oh, was it okay actually I didn't know about that was it an edited version of the the film i would imagine i don't know i'm just seeing i'm yeah. seeing one of my notes here about that but yeah i don't know that 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 seems like uh maybe a late 90s independent mm-hmm film was really popular let's just yeah. quickly take <laughs> so, advantage of this right <laughs> lesser known animator who uh-huh. quentin tarantino and paul thomas anderson have probably talked about or something like probably, that. probably yeah and um, i know when they were making the film there actually was alternate scenes and alternate animations made to try to uh, i guess decrease some of the uh seedier moments uh mm-hmm. i guess they tried to make it a little more r-rated friendly uh mm-hmm. but yeah in the end it was given an x rating rating but the film is considered to be Bakshi's biggest critical success. Mm-hmm. Um, so despite all that, and I wanted to read a couple of quotes here because I think it, it sums up the movie pretty well and uh, people's, a lot of people's thoughts on it. Uh, so Newsweek wrote that the film contained black humor, powerful grotesquerie, and 
peculiar, peculiar raw beauty. Uh, episodes of violence and sexuality are both explicit and parodies of flesh and blood porn, a celebration of urban, de- uh, sorry, a celebration of urban decay, uh, which I think describes it pretty well. And mm-hmm. then also, um, New York Times, uh, Roger Greenspun wrote in 1973, uh, people who felt that his earlier feature, Fritz the Cat, merely debased a cherished original, can now judge Bakshi's development of his own material. I think that that development is as brilliant as anything in recent movies, as brilliant and in his own improbable, improbable way, as lovely and as sad. And I think... That's pretty good at summing up how you feel when you watch this movie. It's it's funny. It's sad. It's off the wall. It's raw. As many a little bit of everything. A little bit of everything. It's offensive. It's yeah. It's everything and a lot to dig into. And this is still just the beginning. The early uh, early stages of our journey with Bakshi, though, because we're going to get into some more epic material. We are not going to do an episode on. Lord of the Rings, I believe we're going to discuss it a little bit along with mm-hmm. uh, a fantasy film that he created himself, a story that he originated called Wizards. That's going to be our next film that we're going to discuss. And there's a lot to discuss there. So we're going to end it for heavy traffic right now. And thanks for listening to Cult Movie Cult. You can find us on iTunes, Podbean and Spotify, as well as on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. If you have any cult films you'd like to hear us discuss on the show or if you'd like to officially join the cult and be a guest on the show, Please feel free to reach out to us at cultmoviecult at gmail.com. This has been Cult Movie Cult, and until next time, so long from the other side.